Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late. O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray for blessing on your word tonight as we read it. And I pray we'd be encouraged, edified, our hearts made strong, so that we can go throughout the week and do the work you have given to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, brothers and sisters, main point up front for tonight, and I'll say it over and over again, God's word shapes how we perceive the world. God's word shapes how we perceive the world. Actually, Dom's sermon today perfectly ties into this when we talk about Abraham offering up his son Isaac. And Dom told us, well, well what, why did Abraham do this? What made him a man of faith? Well, because from God's promises, Abraham was convinced that God could raise his son back from the dead. He believed the gospel. He had seen the resurrection from Sarah's womb being dead to life being given to it. So God's word shaped Abraham's actions and how he viewed the world because of the God he served. And so in Psalm 127, I think Solomon affirms the promises God gave to his father David and explains how those promises impact his perception of the world. There are four major themes that Solomon is reflecting on from the covenant that God made with David. A house, a kingdom, rest from enemies, and an eternal king. And I think the church can pray this psalm and sing it, having seen the mystery of redemption unravel in ways Solomon longed to see. So what I mean is when the church goes back and we look at Psalm 127, we see even greater beautiful truths revealed by the light of the New Testament than that Solomon would have longed to see. All right, a quick context of Psalm 127. So we know that the Psalms were written by a multitude of uh, men, Moses, David, Solomon. Uh, but scholars also recognize that the Psalter as a book was compiled uh, likely close to the 5th century by people like Nehemiah and Ezra. So what's important to know about that is, yes, the Psalm was written in a context, but also the Psalter was organized in a context. And I believe the structure of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is intentional and like any other book in the canon, is inspired. And therefore, it gives us a clue to how we read it. So if you look throughout the Psalms, you'll see divisions within there. It's broken up into five books, just like the Pentateuch is. 
And if you look in your Bible, you'll see these divisions. The last book of each psalm, or the last psalm in each book is 41, 72, 89, 106, and then, of course, 150. And, and just a couple instances where we can see this intentional structure, all of those psalms that follows the last psalm in their book, they all contain a similar last, uh, last verse if you go look at it. The last verse in each chapter will begin with, blessed be, and it'll end with, amen and amen, with two exceptions. Psalm 106 will say, amen and hallelujah. And then Psalm 72 will have that pattern as the second to last verse, because the last verse of Psalm 72 is, this ends the prayers of David, which is another indicator that the book, that there's an intentional structure behind your Psalter, because if you go to Psalm 110, what does it say as the subscription? A Psalm of David. They are one unified, this is, this is from Dave Schrock, they are one unified book telling the story of salvation. In their midst, the reader finds a movement from lament to praise in a series of peaks and valleys that follow the course of redemptive history from David in books one and two, to the exile of David and Israel in book three, to the establishment of Yahweh's kingdom in book four, to the coming kingdom of a new David in book five. And our psalm tonight is contained in book five that's expecting this promised fulfillment of the Davidic king and kingdom. So my hope is you see with me tonight that Psalm 127 is grounded in the covenant that God made with David and Israel, would sing or pray this psalm in hopes that God would fulfill the promises he made to David. Just a couple more things for the context. You'll also see that Psalm 127 is called a song of ascent. They start in Psalm 120, and they go all the way to 134. And we remember that Jerusalem was built on high ground. And so uh, Stephen Dempster points out that the Psalms of Ascent were likely sung by Jews as they traveled up to Jerusalem, a city built on a hill, as they celebrated going to hear the word of God containing the promises of God read aloud. And since Psalm 127 is grounded in the covenant that God made with David, right, it's total, it totally makes sense that Psalm 127 would be put here in our Psalter. And so before we begin the psalm, I think it's important to understand the covenant that God made with David. And I'm just going to read a few of the promises from it. This comes from 2 Samuel 7. But we're told, thus says, thus you shall say to my servant David, some of the things that are said were, I will make you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. Later, he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh will make a house for you. I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then later he says, and your house and your kingdom shall endure 
forever. Me forever, your throne shall be established forever. So in the covenant, there was a few things highlighted. God promised a house, a kingdom, rest from enemies, and a king. And that sets us up to begin in verse 1 of Psalm 127. Starting in verse 1. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So the first point, God promised a house. Well, Solomon first explains how God's word has shaped his view of the building of the temple. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The house in view here is clearly the temple. And building the temple is more than just laying brick and stone. The temple is described as a house because the temple is where God dwells with his people. Just like how God dwelt especially in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and how God dwelt specially in the tabernacle, the temple is a new installment in this series. And since the temple was where God said he would dwell with Israel, to build it would take more than mere flesh and lifting of stone. If Yahweh doesn't come through on his promise, the temple will not get built. The story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar are a very helpful image of this, and Dom shared it today. Abraham and Sarah were very old and yet were promised a son. And a moment of doubt crept in. And so what did they do? They took matters into their own hands. They relied upon the flesh and what they saw as tangible. And therefore, Sarah gave Hagar to her husband, and they had a child according to the flesh. But this was not the promised child, Isaac. Solomon rightly asserts, for this house to be built, God will have to build it. For Solomon, God's word shaped how he saw the world. So Solomon applied this truth to how he saw the physical labor that went into building the temple of God. No matter how hard they worked, if God did not build the temple, it would not happen. In church, we know that in the Old Testament, God concealed mysteries and types and shadows to point and witness to more glorious truths. Just like how the institution of marriage gave a picture and still does for Christ and his bride, the church, and just like today, how we saw come behold the wondrous mystery and we say, see the new and better Adam, the temple concealed one of these mysteries. And when we pray Psalm 127, verse 1, we can say, unless God builds his church, they labor in vain who build it. We, church, are the temple of God. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? Living stones, sacrifices, sanctuary. That's a temple. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, 
So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Or how about also Paul saying in 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, right? You all know, we all know, we all affirm the truth, right? God dwells in the hearts of every single believer and where God dwells, right? That is the temple imagery. So church, if we are the new covenant temple, then God's word shapes how we perceive the world. And as we look into the world, sometimes it can seem like we're losing if we're just being honest. During COVID, we saw people forced by the government to close their businesses. Church doors were shut. Now in our country, a large demographic of people won't even say what a woman is. We have pastors getting caught up in, in uh, conspiracies and uh, evil sin that was hidden, right? We've seen, we've heard about this SBC report uh, of just hidden evil sexual assault that's gone unpunished. Does this ever discourage you? Does it ever get overwhelming? Does it ever get frustrating to hear your favorite pastor caught up in a, in a scandal? I have good news. Friends, God is not losing, not even close. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the gates of Hades will not overpower his church. He will finish the work he started. He will gather the elect. Jesus is the good shepherd who gathers his sheep. His sheep hear their voice and they come. His sheep hear his voice and they come. We know these things are true. So God's word should shape the way we see the world. We aren't losing. Instead, we need to focus on the work God has given us to show we trust his promises. So when you attend our corporate worship, there's a reason Jonathan doesn't have a smoke machine running and some Hollywood light show. You laugh, I've seen it. There's a reason Dom isn't running around doing backflips, and it's not because he hurt his ankle. There's a reason this church preaches the whole counsel of God. There's a reason we reject this heresy that there are some issues the pulpit can't speak to as if Christ isn't Lord over all of them. We tear down the secular lies our, members, our, our church faces like abortion, critical race theory, feminism, transgender nonsense. We don't worry about being seeker-friendly. We read the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we baptize new believers, and we come to the Lord's table all while we live in fellowship with one another so the world can see us as Jesus said we should be, a city on a hill. We approach ministry this way. Why? because God's word shapes how we perceive the world. Next, going back to Psalm 127, in verse one, God promised a kingdom. 
The second half of verse one says, unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. First, let us realize that a city is a place where people live, right? That's what a city is. The watchmen are not just guarding empty real estate. They're guarding people in a temple. Next, the word watch is literally the word for keep or God or, or guard. It's the same word. Keep, guard means the same thing. And the same happens with the word watchman in verse 2. So Jim Hamilton proposes the following translation. He says, if Yahweh will not keep the city, in vain watches the one who keeps it. Well, that shows us the clear pattern that's going on in Solomon's mind. And the reason keep guard language is important to see throughout the verse is because we know the temple is where God dwells with his people. And throughout redemptive history, someone has always been told to guard the place where God dwells. Adam to Abraham to priests. Listen to what the Bible says. In Genesis 2.15, Adam was told to cultivate and keep the garden, the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.24, the cherubim placed at the entrance of the garden was told to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, if you remember, Adam was first told, work and keep the garden. When they sinned and were exiled, Adam was just told to work it because the task of guarding was passed to the cherubim. In Genesis 17, 9, Abraham was told to guard, keep God's covenant. If he didn't, people would be exiled from the group. In Leviticus 8, Aaron and his sons were told to remain at the doorway of the tent of meeting and were told to guard and keep the charge of the Lord. And then in Numbers 3, the Levites, the Levitical priests, were charged with guarding the tabernacle. Like I said, which was where God was dwelling with his people. But as Solomon reflects on the promises to his father, he rightly asserts, for the people of God to last, in order for there to be an eternal kingdom, someone else has to guard the city where God and his people dwell. See, God promised David an eternal line and kingdom. So if God does not do it, the city is not going to last. Israel can put up as many watchmen on the walls as they like. They can try to build the strongest armies in the world, but ultimately, without God, the city is going to fall. Think of that image we've all heard from Psalm 20. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh, our God. Solomon is teaching us that God's word shapes how we perceive the world. In church, we can learn and join in and say, unless God guards his people, those who guard it do so in vain. Church, we are the children of God. All across the New Testament, the imagery of guard keeping is passed on to believers and its shepherds because remember, God dwells with us the church, and as believers. Believers like Timothy are told in 2 Timothy to guard the treasure entrusted to him. Or 1 John 5, which tells believers to guard themselves from idols. 
So God's word says to me, Robert, guard yourself. Catherine, guard yourself. Brent, guard yourself. CD, guard yourself. Janelle, guard yourself. You guard yourself because you are a temple where God dwells. And our shepherds are told in Acts 20 to guard themselves and the flocks that they were given because the church is being built into a temple for God. But ultimately, in order for us to guard the church ourselves, we need what it says in 2 Thessalonians, but the Lord is faithful who will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. Praise our sovereign God who keeps the saints he elects. No one can take them from him. This should give us a rock-solid confidence because God's word shapes how we perceive the world. Church, we can pour every waking hour into ministry, but if God stopped guarding us, we would already have abandoned the faith. Friends, you can do every spiritual discipline in the book. You can pray, fast, read, memorize, meditate, sing, teach, whatever. If God stopped guarding you, none of it would stop you from abandoning the faith. I think I heard John Piper say one time, he talked about how he, he would ask a question, why should you wake up a Christian tomorrow morning? It's because God's word says you will, because God doesn't lose his sheep. Our God does not lose his people. He finishes the work he starts within us. So on the one hand, we should all guard the good deposit of faith God has given to us, while on the same hand, find comfort that, guard, that God will guard us even from ourselves. The kingdom was his to promise, and so it is his to guard the people he elected to put in it for our good and his glory. So it's a good thing that we can say God's word shapes how we perceive the world. Moving on, God's prom God promised rest from enemies. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late. O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Notice what's being contrasted here. The image is having restless people who are up early on the wall and they're out late because they're nervous, they're anxious, and they're placing all their confidence in their own ability to guard the city. And so Solomon says that this attitude is in vain, and he contrasts those actions with the ones of the person who instead doesn't do those things and is given rest. This is because, you already know what I'm going to say, God's word shapes how we perceive the world. Solomon is not condemning hard work or diligence. He's not condemning the mentality that places stock, uh, sorry, he is condemning the mentality that places stock in the actions of men when God is the one who made the promise and provides rest to the one who trusts him. And though the word rest and sleep are not the same, Surely Solomon is recalling what God promised to David when he said, I will give you rest from your enemies. Church, 
if our God makes a promise, he will bring it to pass. In this manner, we can find rest. When we trust in the promises of our God, we can rest because we know what he says is true. And this is where studying God and his character, his attributes, this is where it can be of great comfort to us. God is immutable. That means God does not change. The Bible says God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? Our God is who he is. He does not change his mind. No one can bind him. He is not constrained by the will or actions of man. Everything that God hath decreed will come to pass. That is an infinitely big God. That is an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. Therefore, when he gives us a promise, we know he will bring it to pass. So if God says he will have someone build a temple, nothing will stop him. If God says he is going to make a new covenant where everyone in the covenant knows the Lord and their sins are remembered no more, then no demon or man can stop him. God's word is crystal clear. No sinner can resist the irresistible grace of God. Every sinner called by God gladly receives him for who he is because God brings it to pass. And church, we have an even greater rest from our enemies in Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about Satan and his seed. Jesus tells us, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Satan and his seed can do nothing eternal to you. Sure, they can cause you suffering, and they can cause you like real suffering too. We have brothers here at our church right now who have their livelihood on the line because the government thinks they're God and is forcing them to take a vaccine that they don't want to take. Their livelihoods are literally on the line. The seed of the serpent is making war on the seed of the woman. And most of us, if not all of us, have faced some sort of mocking and have been ostracized because of our hope in Jesus, because of how that orders the way we live our lives. And of course, we know the stories of our brothers and sisters and missionaries who have gone before us and given their lives to proclaim the gospel. So with all of this suffering that we're promised will happen, what is our comfort? It's that Satan and his seed can do nothing eternal to our souls. Christ has given us a rest that nobody else could. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest threat to all of us was the just wrath we incurred on ourselves 
because of our willful rebellion against God's law. The Bible actually said we were at one point enemies with him. Before you were a believer, you were God's enemy. But see, Jesus fulfilled the law for us on our behalf so that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And yes, of course, we are still obligated to obey the moral law of God because it does not change, but not to attain a legal righteousness before God. We obey God's law because our obedience is owed to our gracious creator we love, but our righteousness is given to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you are here and in Christ, know that the government, no government, workmate, family member, or anyone can take away the eternal rest you have secured for you in Jesus Christ. God's word shapes how we perceive the world. And this would be a whole nother sermon, but every Sunday when we set aside our work in obedience to the fourth commandment, because God's moral law does not change, we get a small taste of that rest when we commune, when we come and commune with God in spirit and truth by faith. Every Sunday should be a reminder for all of us that this is the day Christ rose from the dead and rested from his work. And therefore, we in some way that is beautiful join in with that rest when we come to worship him. And while we have this rest, we know what will come of Satan and his seed. Something eternal will happen to them. All of them will be thrown into the lake of fire. And this leads us to our last point. The question is, God promised a kingdom. He promised a temple. He promised rest from enemies. But how was God going to accomplish this? And this leads us to the last aspect. God promised a king. Finishing Psalm 127 in verse 3, Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. So this begs the question, why are children such a comfort and blessing to Solomon? And I think Solomon's worldview has been shaped by the promise his father was given, a promise rooted all the way back in Genesis 3.15. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a kingdom mandate to populate the earth with their seed. And after they rebelled against God, God told Eve that her offspring would crush the seed of the serpent that led them into rebellion. That promise was passed to Abraham when he was told his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations. And that promise was narrowed to Judah when we were told the scepter would not depart from him in Genesis 49. A scepter that we were told in Numbers would rise out of Israel and crush the forehead of Moab. A seed, just like his father, who crushed the head of Goliath, who was a giant clothed in scales. 
And God's son Israel was also supposed to be fruitful and multiply and be a blessing to all the nations as they followed their king. And good news, we know where the story goes. Jesus is the king from David's line who crushes the head of Satan. So why does this promise to his father, traced all the way back through redemptive history, make him think children are a blessing? I think the answer is clear. God's word shapes how we perceive the world. To Solomon, children were not a burden, they were a blessing. And Solomon's use of warrior language connects with this blessing. He describes it like a warrior whose quiver is full with arrows. And I think Solomon uses the warrior language to connect with the other promises God gave to David. A house, a guarded city, and rest from enemies. How was God going to do this? Ultimately, what Israel needed was not higher walls or larger armies, but the promised king to rule. Solomon saw children as a blessing because children were required to bring about the promised seed from the Davidic line who would bless the nations. And how does God defeat the enemies of the people of God? He does so through the birth of an offspring from David's line, Jesus, who's the skull-crushing seed of the woman, and he crushes Satan and his seed. So Solomon can say, how blessed is the man who fills his quiver, because for Solomon, God's word shapes how he perceives the world. And we can join right in with Solomon as the church and say, yes, children are a blessing from God. Our physical children and the new disciples that God saves and brings into fellowship with the church. That is right. Children are a blessing. Emma, you can turn to your parents and say that you're a blessing. Sarah, you can turn to your parents and say you're a blessing. Sola, I don't know where you are. You can turn to mommy. You can say you're a blessing. Phoebe, you're a blessing. They're blessings to their parents. It's true. On the authority of God's word, children are not burdens. They're blessings. Children are still a blessing from God because God gives life to the wombs of women. It is nothing short of an absolute miracle. Because our world, they just recognize what goes on in the womb as just physical flesh. And some of them don't even recognize that. We know what I'm talking about. But we know as Christians, every single baby in the womb doesn't just have a body, but also has a soul as an image bearer of God. In church, I know in today's culture, war is being made on the idea of having children. Our world sees children as checks, time suckers, inconveniences. For everybody here, no more dream home on Pebble Beach. No more Tesla or whatever fancy car you see in the Monterey show the next couple weeks. No more summer trip to Europe. They're seen as vacuums that take away our hope for the American dream. But we see children as blessings. Why? Because God's word shapes how we perceive the world. And don't believe the lie that, that our culture tells you. Believing that children are a blessing from God takes one who believes in the promises of God. After the victory of Roe v. Wade, some evangelicals came out publicly saying things like, 
This is just a step. We need to make abortion unthinkable. Because they liken the reason many kill their children because of economics. That's what, that's what they mean by it. They think the answer is we need to provide enough money to these women so they don't want to kill their own children. That's why they use the phrase unthinkable. But if we just pause for a second, we can hear how stupid that is. And that's just what it is. Because it's already unthinkable for a mother to kill her child. You see, external factors and explaining that if we solve that, the sin goes away, that's not how sin works. The issue is not economics. It's not external. The issue is a sinful heart that rejects what God said, what God's words say about children and despises anything that removes them from the center of their own universe. And if it's true that God's word shapes how we perceive the world, it's also true to say rejection of God's word shapes how we perceive the world. I think of our sister Desiree. We all know what's going on with Desiree. Every day, throwing up, achy, in pain, discomfort, hard to keep on weight. She has one of the hardest pregnancies I have ever heard of. Yet, every day, our sister fights for the life of her child. Why? Because she believes in God's promises. His promises about his goodness and his faithfulness. His promise that he works all things for good. His promise that that child is a blessing from him, the author of life. And because she believes that, the promises have a practical implication for her as she does battle until she delivers her son. And all you mothers know, the battles you go through from the first trimester to the first few months of being postpartum, all the way until they leave the house and start their own family. And even then, it doesn't end. Yet every day, God's word is saying is still a blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And not only are physical children a blessing from the Lord, but also, church, disciples, spiritual children are a blessing from the Lord. Many of us know the incredible grace of seeing someone we labor over get saved by our gracious God. But it doesn't end there. You see, the gates of hell will not prevail, and God will build his church. But how? Well, we know how. God will build his church through the proclaiming of the gospel. We know from Romans what it says. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. And so the question naturally follows. How then will they call on him who they they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things? God is going to build his church through the proclaiming of the gospel from Christians like you and me. So we can echo Jesus and pray for laborers to go and make disciples, to work the harvest, to evangelize to all we can, and trusting in our God who uses our labor because God's word shapes how we perceive the world. And because of that, and because that's what his word says, I can sum with, I can say this with confidence on the authority of God's word. Unless God builds his church, we labor in vain who build it. 
Unless God guards his people, we who guard do so in vain. Our God gives us rest from our enemies and children are a blessing from God. Our physical children and the new disciples that God saves and brings into fellowship with his church through the proclaiming of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray that we would all adopt a full Christian word, uh, worldview. Please, Lord, teach us. Teach us from the whole counsel of God so that whatever new challenge comes up, we can approach it through your word, standing fast in your promises. I pray that your promises, Lord, would sink deep into our hearts and control every single thing we do. And I thank you, Lord, because we know the gates of Hades will not prevail against your church. We thank you for being the sovereign God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.